Thanks be to God. Well, you're, you, if you don't come here often, you might be saying, Jimmy, that's a doozy. <laughs> Those texts, were those specially selected for preschool Sunday? <laughs> We're following what's called the lectionary. The lectionary assigns our text throughout the year over a three-year uh, pattern. It gives us four texts uh, that are drawn together with similar themes. And so I assure you that these were not hand-selected because your child is in preschool. But near the end of his life, uh, and certainly as he concluded his leadership to the nation, Moses, the great leader Moses uh, to the Jewish nation, delivered one last message to God's people. And he was standing just outside that land of promise. And Moses, of course, was not going to go into the land, as the story goes. But instead, new leadership would be selected. And we, we hear all this in what's called the book of Deuteronomy. And it's here, specifically in chapter 30 of that book, that Moses identifies a notable fork in the road. He says, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. And unlike the famed Yogi Berra quip, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Here, there are two distinct contrasting choices to be made. Moses will exhort his hearers to choose the better way. What he says here is choose life. And what that path entails is outlined uh, further in Deuteronomy chapter 30, specifically in verses 16 and 20. But in verse 20, we hear this. He says, that path is loving the Lord your God, obeying God, and holding fast to God. Of course, later generations will sing and celebrate that this leads to a happy and blessed condition. You see that in the psalmist when they write in Psalm 119, uh, the first three verses of that chapter. They affirm that indeed this would be the way to prosperity. Of course, that's not an easy road. That's not an easy place, an easy thing to live out. Of course, like us, the ancients knew this and oftentimes settled for collapsing into old life patterns. They didn't quite follow it faithfully. Sometimes they chose the path to life, only to quickly do a reverse course and head down a far different path. And that was certainly the case in Moses' day. It's the case in our day. And it was the case in the first century for the, that Corinthian church, those Jesus followers, from whom the text that we heard in our epistle reading was addressed to. It was that same group that had all kinds of power struggles going on. Here in our text, that there's identification of quarreling and bad behavior. We talked a couple weeks ago about friction and factions that form. These things, of course, form in communities that are organized around power. And so Paul here will use words when he writes to them by recalling them fleshly and infants. That contrasts their sense of themselves, of being wise and being spiritual. And he goes on to say this, just as they're stung by those words, are you not behaving according to human inclinations? We are inclined as people to seek out power, to organize ourselves around that, to use that as a checklist for our lives and our communities and for the way that we orient ourselves. But here comes Jesus on the scene. Matthew chapter 5. He's already invited us in the Beatitudes to a different kind of life. An altogether different kind of life. And in that invitation, he has marked it from the very beginning with those words that ring from the psalmist, which stretch all the way back to Moses, that this is the life and the context for what it means to live a blessed, a happy condition. 
He suggests to us that the way that life should be organized and the way that our communities should take shape is not around the pursuit of power, but rather a community that's organized around love. And when that takes shape, it looks different than the ways that we've organized ourselves in the past. And he uses four places here in our text, but even more as the Sermon on the Mount goes on, to demonstrate how a community of love looks far different than our own interpretations and our human inclinations. And he does so with the starkest of categories. Let's start off with a big one. Murder. We're not going to ask for a show of hands this morning. I didn't say why, I just said we're not going to ask for a show of hands. But I suspect that most of us here, and I of course hope that all of us, all of us, would see that murder is a brutal and heinous act. It's a selfish act. It's a violation of trust. It destroys the fabric of a community. It destroys relationships quite literally. When you murder somebody, you put yourself in a powerful position, exerting your own power and interest over the other, and in turn you end up destroying them, and you destroy the very fabric of community that exists all around you as the repercussions of that event show. We see destroyed lives. We see people whose trust level is not only broken, but their ability to cope with life circumstances. Fear enters into the equations, and it has a ripple effect that can go through generations. We don't have to look further than the headlines where we see murder represented and shown to us even in our own day, and we see the destruction that it wreaks. Just even look at the college campus in Idaho, what happened shortly after those murders. That place cleared out, and people were afraid because trust had been violated, and that was all because, presumably, because of someone exerting power. A strange, odd form of power, but power nonetheless. So when we hear the good instruction, you shall not murder, we like the ancients would nod our heads in agreement. Oh yeah, of course, Jesus, that makes complete sense. And the vast many of us, it's not difficult to keep this instruction. Uh, but Jesus will do something strange here in, a, in the ears of the hearers then, but something very peculiar to the hearers today. He starts scratching at the instruction. He starts to scratch away like a lottery ticket to reveal something more there than what could be seen initially. And this scratching reveals to us what Eric Barreto calls the abiding divine values these commandments communicate. When it comes to murder, what we do with our anger and the far less positive ways we treat one another make that list. There's a, a seed planted that, given full fruition, would become murder. Don't think that's true. Why do we call it backstabbing? Right? Our own language betrays our own understanding of how difficult and dangerous our own inner life can become. And so once Jesus offers this reinterpretation to the crowd for them to see that it's much further expanded, that this instruction is bigger than they might have imagined or even pretended that it was, he now reorients his hearers to a new way forward. And this is where he develops and shapes the community around what it looks like to be organized around love and not power. In this case, we don't allow murder or murderous thoughts or anger or all these other categories that are connected. We don't allow those to grow. We don't let disagreements fester. Instead, we settle matters quickly. We become a people that seek after reconciliation. And so when we gather here each week and we pass the peace, it is an embodiment of that reconciliation 
There's a moment in that passing the peace where you say, there's no way I'm going to shake that person's hand, or I don't like that dude over there. You're making Jesus' point. We're allowing it to grow and fester, and it creates a certain odd, misshaped type community. But Jesus says, don't let that happen. Before you offer your gifts at the altar, go and fix the situation. Be reconciled to each other so that you don't become misshapen. It also suggests that our failures amongst one another might in fact affect our relationship with God. That it spans far deeper than we imagine. Well, I haven't killed anybody, so I'm not going to have to worry about the murder one. Uh, Jesus cues up adultery. Another biggie. And as he cues that up, I'm sure there was many people gathered there who would nod their head in agreement. Oh, yes, yes, that's inappropriate and bad behavior. We wouldn't do that. Of course, a great deal of folks would say, I don't have much problem with keeping that commandment. Uh, I'm, I'm faithful, but Jesus, again, uncovers by scratching at the surface the abiding divine value here. And when that's exposed, the remedy that he offers looks far more extensive and requires far more attention than we might have previously imagined. Now, I should offer a warning here. Uh, Gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand, which Jesus uses here in hyperbolic language, I can say that because chances are when you do that, it may not actually solve your lust problem. You just now don't have an eye or a hand. And people, of course, in our own day and age have taken this to literal extremes. You can just do a quick search and see headlines where people have actually done this to themselves. I remember a number of years ago, I was with a group, uh, and we were taking students uh, to a swim party. And we were working with a, another congregation, and they asked us to separate the boys and the girls. And I was like, I'm a youth leader. I was like, why are we doing that? They said, well, we're just going to separate them. We had to go in two different buses. The boys were in one bus, and the girls were in another. And they said, we're going to have a talk with the girls. And then I was supposed to lead the guy talk. I didn't know what I was supposed to talk about. I didn't know why we were breaking into groups. And so I went to the bus with all the guys and, hey guys, how's it going? <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be talking about right now. And it turned out that in the other bus, they're having a conversation about what you should wear when you go swimming. And so they talked to the, all the young women there uh, about what they should be wearing. And I remember on another occasion, this came up again where people came into my office and said, hey, I know you're going on a trip where you're going to be swimming. Have you talked to people about what they should be wearing? And I was, I was confused by all this, and then they dumped out a pile of one-piece swimsuits on my desk and then started to talk about tankinis. I had no idea what's going on. I don't know what a tankini is. <laughs> and I wonder what I'd gotten myself into. But these are all efforts. These are all efforts to try to live into what is imagined what Jesus is talking about here. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. It doesn't matter uh, even if you have a tankini on right? Lust finds a way. People in the deep-seated hearts, things that are going internally and stuff, we're very crafty and sneaky. We're very creative people. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, we all are sneaky. And Jesus here is pointing to something that if we missed it in the murder part, you hear it in the adultery part. We need to cultivate lives that deal with the interior as well. Now, if we're just going to make it down to a checklist of the physical manifestations that happen in community, we're only going to get it half right. But Jesus is talking about a people and a community that are doing the deep, deep work. 
fact, one writer here says, Jesus shifts our attention from particular behaviors we must avoid to particular interior orientations we must cultivate. Kingdom righteousness saturates our whole lives. Of course, Jesus will go on and talk about this community that's organized around love does that kind of hard work. He goes with divorce. He goes on to talk about oaths. In Jesus' day, there was a lot of discussion around divorce. In our own day, we see divorce. It's, it's, a, it's something that's prevalent. It was prevalent in Jesus' day as well. And as they had the discussions, there were different camps and different rabbis held different positions. Some hold a very loose uh, type position, a much more freedom there. Others held a much more restrictive view. I think we'd find the same bunch in our own day today around divorce. But what Jesus is drawing the attention of the hearers to once more, the same as in the oaths, is these are places in our community, our communal life together, where we've made commitments, where we said to one another, we're going to be committed. And Jesus just simply says, be committed. Be committed. He does offer a place where he says, okay, there's some places where you would be out of this commitment. That's because the trust has already been violated. And that's the illustration he uses. But to maintain trust and remain the fabric of community, the people that he's calling to life, calling to that way of love, that community that's organized around love, he's calling them to places to maintain trust with one another because that's what God desires on that path to life. So we hear all that and we think, what do we do now? How do we live that? What if I already made violations in some of these areas? What if I already walking down a path that, that has taken me places where I don't feel like I can come back from? What do I do now? Well, the ancients weren't naive. They weren't ignorant. They knew that their struggle would be our own as well. And so as they're facing off with the things they contended with in their own day, which were very much similar to what we face in our own day, the only difference is we have batteries, right? But they weren't naive in that, and they recognized that the struggle wasn't in isolation. They recognized that they weren't alone in that journey towards the path towards life. So much so that Paul will later write in Titus chapter 3, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us. He brought salvation to us. He freed us from that bondage, that, that place of struggle. And Paul will go on to say, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done. It wasn't anything that we had done. He goes on, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus has done the heavy lifting for us, that we could be that people. Jesus has modeled it for us. Jesus has given us good instruction towards us. But then Jesus did the cleanup work for us empowering us so that we might live into this kind of life by offering us salvation and freedom from the things that entrap us and bind us, from a past that might be something that's holding us down in the present and keeping us from experiencing joy in the future, that Jesus gives us freedom in those places. And so I oftentimes draw back to a quote from N.T. Wright, and I'll close with this, a quote that I think uh, shapes and shares for us what the shape is of a community of love. Right here it's talking about God's own beloved community, those, that community with Jesus at the center. He says it would be a church that's called by love, shaped by love, striving to live by love. That's what it means to be organized by love. May we be that community 
in our generation, not shaped by power or power struggles, but shaped as a community that's striving for love. May it be so for us today and every day of our lives.